1: Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer, and I have with me today Rena Van Ous from Strata Central. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing very well. We are here for our regular catch up. We do this about once every couple of weeks. Rena co hosts with me on the podcast, and we cover off our wins and challenges for the week. Rena, I'm going to ask you do you feel like you have had mainly wins or mainly challenges the last week? <laughs>
0: I would say in strata management, generally, it's mainly challenges. Yeah,
1: it's uh, often hard to find the wins in the weeds of the challenges, but they are there and it's important to celebrate them, I think. So, that's part of what we're doing here today.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes what is a win may not always be considered to be a win because of the journey that you've had to um, endure a manner to actually get there. So, very true. Now, Having said that, we're actually going to start with challenges this week. Rena. what has been your challenge you'd like to chat about? Well, this is actually probably one that's very common um, in terms of there was a problem with some clogged up pipes in a strata scheme that we manage. Unfortunately, I think people were disposing of those toilet wipes into the toilets, which there's actually a case recently where the ACCC said that they weren't responsible for that. But anyway, I so saw it, that, yeah. You know, there weren't that many complaints about it, I would say, not enough evidence. Mm. Anyway, so the sewerage unfortunately got into the apartment and just destroyed all the carpet, you know, some people's belongings, some furniture. And um, the building manager acted very quickly and promptly. The, the plumber was called out. We arranged for the carpet people to come out, but originally they thought they could dry it out, but then they realised that wasn't possible, so it had to be removed. There were tenants in the apartment, so they had to be relocated. There was obviously loss of rent. So this is all now still in train. But the interesting question, Amanda, was by the owner of the lot who rang me this week and said, well, I've got contents insurance and I've been asked by my property manager to claim I'm on contents insurance for the carpets and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, that's correct. And he said, but why should I have to pay the excess when it wasn't my fault? It was basically the fault of the building where people had been obviously throwing these things down the toilet, causing this blockage. Mm. I thought Amanda, I would raise this in our podcast today just to see what your view was because it is consequential damage that he has had to endure and whether or not the owners corporation could reimburse him for the excess that he has to pay. So, I wasn't really mm. sure about that one. I thought that would put that one to you, Amanda. Mm,
1: very good question. The way that I think about this is to look at the owner's corporation's legal obligation to repair and maintain the common property. Most of us will be across that by now, especially if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. If the owner's corporation doesn't properly repair and maintain the common property and a lot owner suffers some kind of loss or damage, then our legislation in New South Wales says that the owner's corporation is responsible for meeting that loss and that damage. Now, it sounds like that's what's happened in this case. The owner's corporation- I think I would
0: disagree, man. because it's accidental damage. It's not as if it hasn't done something. It's that people have been putting these things down the toilet and no one would know about that until- something happened so it's actually covered as accidental damage under the policy because it wasn't something that was um known otherwise it wouldn't be covered by the insurance company and the insurance company has covered the rest of the claim okay very good so the owners corporations building insurer has covered the claim so
1: they've obviously taken the view this is not a failure to repair and maintain this is an accident perfect okay i like that yeah
0: but the excess that he has to pay for the carpet yeah which is not covered under the building policy. So, therefore, the building policy will cover the building aspect of it, Yep, damage to the building. But the other side of the coin is that he has to now claim on his contents insurance Mm. for the carpet replacement and and other sort of things that were damaged that were contents. Mm. So, he's now saying to us, Amanda, I want my $500 excess paid to me by the ANSQ because it wasn't my fault. Yep. And I'm thinking, well, it's not really our fault either, but I wasn't really sure how the the new... in this case, well, the
1: only avenue for an owner to claim that kind of a loss from an owner's corporation is through a failure to repair and maintain. If it is not a failure to repair and maintain, there is no claim against the owner's corporation. He has what we say as lawyers, he has no cause of action. And I've actually been reviewing some cases on that question recently, and there's quite a good tribunal case. It is a recent one, I'll just find the name and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And it goes through exactly this process of, What avenues do lot owners have to claim damages against owners' corporations? And this tribunal case makes very clear that the only avenue is under section 106, which is a right that arises because of a failure to repair and maintain the common property. Now, that case is Sik, S-I-K, not sure if that's the right pronunciation. It's an appeal panel case from March 2019, the New South Wales Tribunal. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's a really good one for going through that process of, in short, saying there are very limited avenues for lot owners to claim damages from owners' corporations. And I would say if this is accidental damage, your building insurer has covered it. Their contents insurer has covered
0: it. Unfortunately, he's left with the excess. Now, the other thing, just to throw a bit of a spanner in the works, Amanda, is that he said that there should have been something in the building that would stop, I don't know, some plumbing thing, I don't really understand, mm. I need to look more into it, that should have been built into the all apartments. This is obviously a new, a very recent block that would stop this thing from happening and, therefore, had this been done, then he wouldn't have suffered this loss and damage. So right. I suppose if something has been built a certain way and there's something that should have been done that hasn't been done, does the owners' corporation then become responsible if it didn't even know until this event occurred that this was a case, or is that a totally different avenue? Mm.
1: Yeah, it depends on obviously that's something that he's saying by the sounds yeah. of it. Yeah. I would query what does the owners' corporation's own plumbers say about this? What's their view? Is this, as we think, an accident because of? flushable wipes that are actually not flushable. uh, (laughs) Nobody's holding these companies to account. If it's an accident and that's what your plumbers say, then you're entitled to rely on that. If he wants to take a different view and say, well, the pipes should have been constructed a certain way.
0: Well, there should have been something that that is inserted at the junction where it doesn't right. allow. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Well,
1: then query is that an original building defect and if it's a new building, are they still within their warranty period to go back to the builder? If it is some kind of a defect, then, yes, that would fall within that repair and maintenance obligation and so then we're back to that other view yeah
0: yeah okay yeah that's good to know thanks amanda interesting one i'm
1: sure there's many managers out there our owners no doubt who have that question come up uh it's an awful situation when there is a sewerage problem and horrible for the person who has to deal with that in their apartment yeah exactly mm. okay my challenge for this week relates to meetings and specifically the adjournment of meetings. So Rena, no doubt this happens to you from time to time. There is a need to adjourn a general meeting and we certainly have provision in our legislation in New South Wales for meetings to be adjourned and what happens when we adjourn meetings when should the adjourned meeting then take place? But something that I couldn't answer and I don't believe is set out in the legislation, is what happens to the motions that are resolved prior to the adjournment? Do they become actionable? Can the strata manager, the committee members actually take steps to do work that has been resolved to be done, for example, even though the meeting has not officially ended, it has actually been adjourned. What's your view on
0: that, Rena? Have you been in that situation? It's funny how you say, Amanda, about meetings being adjourned. So, in the previous legislation when a quorum wasn't achieved, a meeting had to be adjourned, a general meeting had to be adjourned. Actually, it was adjourned three times. So, the same meeting, general meeting had opened and went over like three or four months because there were issues originally arising out of a proxy that had been submitted, which allegedly had been forged, so the meeting was adjourned at the point that that forgery, in inverted commerce had been discovered, and then it was adjourned again for because there were so many issues in the, and so much discussion that, unfortunately, there was, I think, two or three hours had elapsed and we still hadn't completed the meeting. So, my view is that you can still complete the resolutions that have been adopted because you had a quorum at that particular mm. time those motions were considered. The only caution I would add to that comment, Amanda, is that if a motion depends on a subsequent motion, let's say you're approving a quote, but you haven't yet approved the budget or you don't have enough money for it, then I suppose that would be the only caution I would say that you can't proceed until a subsequent motion has been adopted. Sometimes I find with managing agents and people in general or committee members that they, they put motions in an order necessarily that's not sequential. So it's like putting that horse before the cart. So you've really got to make sure that if you are adopting a particular quotation that you basically make sure that the budget has been approved. And I'll give you an example. I've got one coming up where they want to install solar panels, which obviously is a special resolution. It's, it's an alteration to common property. So, we have to make sure that that's passed first. But then the budget has to also be approved to allow that to be funded. So, we have to put that motion before the budget. Not So, that is very important that anything that's interdependent has to be approved prior to the actioning of any motions, but I don't believe that you can't action the motions because the meeting hasn't finished.
1: Yeah. That was the view that I ended up taking when I thought that through. But one thing that I did point out to the person who was asking me this question is to be aware that the strata committee does not vacate its position until the end of the meeting. And our legislation says that. And I think Rena, you and I talked about that a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. So query whether if there are steps that need to be taken by the strata committee, Who is the new strata committee, the old strata committee? Who are the legal committee members? Because even though you may have elected a new committee, if your meeting is then adjourned after that election has taken place and that motion is resolved those new committee members have not taken up their positions. You still have the old committee because our legislation is expressed and it says that the committee
0: members for the previous year only vacate at the end of the meeting. Yeah, and it makes sense, Amanda, because the chairperson doesn't stand down the minute the new committee election takes place. He or she continues to chair the meeting to its conclusion. Mm. So there might be things that the strata manager can do
1: in the midst of, uh, well, while waiting for the adjourned meeting to take place, but it may be that the majority of things cannot happen because they require the new strata committee to take certain steps. I suppose the old strata committee could still do things.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, I suppose it depends on what was on the agenda because a resolution of a general meaning can be delegated to the strata manager because the general meaning authority doesn't require the committee's consent in the first instance, unless a matter of the steps the committee has to take to affect those mm. resolutions. So. Yeah. And I wonder if that's why we often see the election of the strata committee
1: being one of the very last things that is on the agenda of an annual general meeting. I think that's a good course of action. Yeah, exactly. Okay, if you want to find out more about adjourning meetings in New South Wales, check out clause 20 of Schedule 1 to our Strata Schemes Management Act. I'll put a link to that one in the show notes. Moving over to your win for this week, Rena.
0: Yeah, this is actually quite a really satisfying win, Amanda, because um, I've taken over a scheme where it's part of a BMC and the strata scheme that, that we're managing is actually the majority entity, even though, unfortunately, the way that the document was drafted was that voting rights are equal, even though the general split of the share facilities is three to one. In terms of contribution and allocation. Anyway, so we're now the strata managers. We've been managers since the end of last year, and the BMC manager is still the manager that was the manager that had been managing the strata schemes. And what had happened was there's a building manager and there are repairs that have to be done. And and I keep telling the building manager, no, this is actually not a strata scheme um, responsibility. It's actually a responsibility of the building management committee. So for those that don't understand what this means, it's when two or more entities share. A service, so therefore, it's not solely just for the use of one entity. Both entities use this particular service. For example, a garage door where occupants of both buildings have car spaces in the garage, there's only one garage door that is there. So, that is what we consider to be a shared facility because two entities are sharing the same garage door to get into their car spaces. Anyway, so we had the fire issue came up and other issues, and every single time I kept telling. That building manager, no, that's not right. I'm not paying for this. It's got to be invoiced to the BMC. And then the BMC manager's is telling him, no, she's wrong and that's not right and and providing these clauses that weren't even relevant. But anyway, and so I'd, I've sort of felt I was in a situation where the poor building manager was like, you know, the meat and the sandwich. And I know that I'm right because I've managed a number of building management committees. So I do know how they sort of operate and the whole premise behind how they're constructed. Anyway, so I decided... To actually write to the author of the document, the lawyer who actually drafted the SMS for the development. And basically, I just said, This is my interpretation. This is the, their interpretation. And can you please provide clarity? Because I thought, if I went back to the author of the document, then that would hopefully dispel any issues arising out of the misinterpretation. Because there are invoices that have been paid by the Strata scheme before we took over that are are actually mm. building management committee invoices and so finally yeah, the lawyer said no that what you're saying is correct the clauses that the other manager was referring to don't apply in this instant it applies to certain things which was fairly obvious to me but anyway mm. and um yeah and so now we have agreement at least on what is a shared facility i hope but mm. unfortunately AS corporation had um expended money on fire doors and I said, well, basically, you need to reimburse us for this FIDO report. And they're saying, no, the other member won't, won't reimburse it because its consent wasn't obtained. I said, yeah, but that was because you gave incorrect advice. So now we're getting into this, the second part of the um, situation, but hopefully it'll be resolved. But, yeah, so I suppose right. it, it, it's a very good win, Amanda, but I think that it just it probably happens another Pandora's box, but I think, for other schemes where perhaps the managing agent doesn't really understand how... the the document works. Mm. These complex titling structures can
1: trip many of us up from time to time. And it is so, so important to go back to the document to work out who's responsible for what. And certainly in the case of a BMC, a building management committee, the SMS, the Strata Management Statement is a really important document. In that situation, Rena, are you just managing the BMC and there are other managers managing the Strata Scheme? I don't know.
0: I'm only managing the Strata Plan who's a member of see. It actually is a majority member. There's, it's paying for 75% of the cost amount of because it actually has three times the number of, of lots in an apartment. Yeah, sure. So the cost of it is, is accurate. What's not accurate is the voting rights, which are equal. Mm. And then you have a manager that doesn't even understand how, how it works. Yeah. And I find that is just so
1: common that these strata management statements are drafted in a way that is inherently unfair and they're so mm. difficult to change. Yeah. And difficult when you have different managers managing the entities and then a different manager managing the BMC and you have these differences of opinion. It can be helpful to have different views, of course, and different ways of management. And often if there is conflict, it's important to have different representatives guiding the different entities. But yeah, you take the good with the
0: bad, hey? But I think Amanda, in this case, like the BMC manager was the manager for the straddle plan initially. So that was like, but in a sense, if, if the manager doesn't understand what's covered by the building management committee and what's not, then the strata plan is paying more money than it should be paying yeah well
1: therein lies the conflict because you Mm. were pointing out a mistake on the part of the bmc manager who was then managing the strata scheme and having them overpay exactly yeah so you're never going to win that one (laughs) not without Uh, a fight i I
0: have to now go back to all the invoices and basically that's what i've been asked to do is to audit all the invoices which is correct because in the day we're still paying our bmc levy the amount that's been Um, raised in accordance with the BMC meeting, but the apportionment of those costs and inclusion of them is incorrect. So,
1: yeah. So work out how many thousands or tens of thousands or who knows, even hundreds of thousands of dollars you've overpaid and then make that commercial decision as to whether it's worth pursuing.
0: Exactly. All
1: right. Thank you for sharing that one, Rena. Let us know how it all works out. Yeah, I will. The win that I want to bring to the table this week relates to this interesting question, which a number of managers are probably across. How are our older schemes, our pre-1974 schemes, different to our newer schemes in particular when it comes to the boundaries between lot property and common property? Now, this is a question that has received lots and lots of attention inside our member forum at the moment. And it was such a great conversation. I thought I'd bring it to the podcast. And no doubt there are some of you out there who have no idea what I'm talking about, and this will be an educational session for you. So what happens with our older schemes, and it's actually pre-1 July 1974, schemes that were registered pre-1 July, 1974, they have different rules applying when it comes to the boundaries between lot property and common property. And that's because they fall under our 1961 Strata Titles Act, and there were some amendments when our Strata Scheme Development Act of 1973 came into force, and that came into force in 1974. And the transitional provisions around that legislation are a little bit confusing, and they trip up many a manager, many a building, and whenever I have to look into this, I always have to go back and revise the legislation as well. But the general rule, which we talked about inside the member forum, is that where you have a boundary that separates part of a lot from another part of the same lot, that boundary, whether it's a wall, whether it's a balcony door, a window, a slab, if you have a terraced lot, so you've got an upstairs, downstairs, what is within that boundary is lot property. Now, that's unusual because under our newer legislation for our newer schemes, that boundary, the slab, the balcony window, the balcony door would actually be common property and the responsibility of the owners corporation. In these older schemes, it is lot property. Now that is not the case where the boundary is separating the lot from another lot or the common property. So where we have the balcony slab that's separating the lot on level three from the lot on level two, that slab is common property just as it would be as we're used to in our newer schemes. So the waterproof membrane, if there's any concrete cancer, even in our older schemes, that's going to be the responsibility of the owners corporation. The same applies to a balcony balustrade because that's essentially a wall that is separating the lot from generally the common property or outside of the strata scheme the balustrade is going to be the responsibility of the owners corporation. Now this came up in the forum because a strata manager had been confused about this and had been telling a lot owner that because you are a pre-1974 scheme, you're responsible for not only your balcony doors and windows, but your slab and your waterproof membrane and your balustrade. Really? (laughs) Yes. So we delved in some depth into this question and I together with some other experts in the forum provided this guidance. Do you find it something that confuses buildings you're working with, Rena? And what do you think of my explanation? Please do jump in and clarify anything.
0: Oh no, I mean you're spot on the mark, Amanda. Exactly what you're saying is correct. In a sense, when you've got a window or a balcony door, that's what I think confuses people. But uh, to me, it's like, it's when you understand how it works, where the boundary of the lot is, it's pretty much right on the edge of it. You know, upper surface, bottom and right on the edge. Then I think it makes it, if you can visualize it in that way, I think it helps people understand um, what is current property and what is lot property. I suppose in a sense, I've had this question asked about an older scheme is where people have actually, for example, added balconies where balconies weren't present onto the boundary of the lot, it does that become common property or is it still lot property, even though there's been no formal approval of those subject balconies and manners. So that's something that's probably still for an older building, mm. but I suppose it's a totally different question. I think we can probably talk about it another time. Mm. As when people make alterations to common property that are not approved, in let's say 30, 40 years ago, do those then become by default common property because they look like they're common property on the outside you would think that these apartments that had windows had that have then taken them off and made balconies and put balconies there, are they now common property or not? So mm. Yeah, it's probably a topic for another day, but... um. Well, bear in mind the caveat on all of this, and I probably should have said this at the beginning,
1: is that you start by looking at the strata plan and if there is any note, a written notation on the strata plan that says anything about where the boundaries lie, that note prevails. So often we will see on older plans that even though under the legislation, the balcony doors and windows separating the inside of a lot to the outside balcony would be lot property. There's a notation on the plan that says, no, these are actually common property. So it's really important to look at the strata scheme, always look at the strata plan, of course, but particularly for our older buildings before you make this assumption about balcony doors, just check that there's nothing contrary on the strata plan. And I wonder if when these older buildings are doing renovations, you said you talked about unapproved renovations there, Rena, so no doubt nothing would be noted on the strata plan, ah, but exactly. if balconies are being added or, or modern things are being done, it would be really important to update the strata plan and make clear, I would suggest, in line with the modern legislation where the boundaries
0: lie yeah exactly thanks for that Amanda
1: so I found that to be a win it's always good to revise those complex issues for everybody and I know that was helpful for those who were involved in that discussion in the forum I think that is about it for this week Rena anything to add I think Amanda all good excellent look forward to catching you next time okay bye